thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the programme that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. With me, Chris Smith. And coming up this week, what should we make of claims that China is building super weapons to hack and hijack US satellites? Also, the new app to help midwives detect health conditions in newborns. And we hear from the couple who've discovered one of the world's most important fossil deposits. And it's almost on our own doorstep. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First this week, the competition between China and the United States is nothing new, but Beijing's attempt to rapidly develop a space programme has given rise to claims that the world's two most important powers are embarking on a new space race. It follows the leak recently of a top-secret CIA intelligence report suggesting that China is building cyber weapons and attack satellites capable of destroying rival American space assets, probably with an eye on acquiring Taiwan. So should we be concerned? Well, journalist and leading China expert Isabel Hilton dropped in to see me at Queen's College, Cambridge today. China has had a space programme for many years. But what's changed really is the geopolitical relationship between China and the United States. And what that has done is raise the question of space as a new domain for warfare. So any Chinese investment in space, uh, in space technologies, in in its ballistic programme, in its satellite programme, will be interpreted by US security services as a potential threat, because that's their job. They're there to monitor what the potential enemy is doing. And since China and the United States are now in confrontation, then they are concerned. Now, how concerned should we be? Well, it's obviously worrying that space would become a warfare domain. After all, all of modern life depends on space technology. So when those things become possibly a theatre of conflict, we all have to be concerned. If you're looking at what you could call in rather old-fashioned terms a space race, then the United States is still a long way ahead of China. China's investing, but the United States is investing more and has invested over a longer period of time, has more technology and more partners, crucially. So it's not really a question of, of China overtaking the United States tomorrow, but as any defence establishment does, they think of the future and they try to plan for it. You mentioned partners, and that's interesting because China has very few. They're not very space-enabled. But what America's tending to do is invest in projects which are globally reaching. Their aim is to do things like, let's get to the moon and see what that can do for the world, whereas China seemed to be sending out the message, let's get to the moon and see what that can do for China. 
You're absolutely right. And the Chinese space program is substantially military and defense. And even the question of satellites, which are, you know, GPS or communication satellites, the whole program is still under the control of the military. Whereas if you look at the at the payload, for example, of American rockets, it's substantially civilian. I've been reading about some really quite scary stuff, like uh, it's the wrong analogy to use, but satellites that are almost like Russian dolls with satellites hiding inside them where you can deploy a baby satellite that comes out that might attack something else. People are saying the next war will be fought from space. It, it, is, it looks very much like a military programme. And, and, I mean, the problem is that destroying each other's space as- assets, it, that is a doomsday weapon. I mean, that is very, very serious damage. So it's unlike the nuclear programmes. We don't have generations of talks and treaties to examine what would be a catastrophe for all humanity and, and seek to limit it. We don't have that in space. I mean, space is not meant to be militarised. However, we seem to be nudging that. And if you look at what is being said, for example, about a potential war over Taiwan, which is probably the most likely conflict in the near future, it is very much discussed that China could and might seek to destroy all American assets in the region very early on, and that would include satellites. And that puts people back past the machine age. So it is very dangerous to regard this as something that could be done casually and without consequences. The one thing that certainly has changed in China is there's now a burgeoning middle class. There's been a huge flow of money because we're all buying stuff that they're making. And many are saying, what would President Xi get from a war? Because it will cost him money and it will certainly cost him income from the rest of the world who would do to China what we've done to Russia with various sanctions and so on. So at the moment, people are arguing that we need to continue to trade with China and keep the money flowing because otherwise they will be incentivized to move in the direction that you've been saying. I think the worrying thing is that if you read what is being written in China in official documents under Xi Jinping. It is a very, very different tone from his predecessors. More than 10 years in, he's still purging people. He seems very fearful of his position. And if you translate that into geopolitics, the Chinese state seems to regard the United States as an as a completely hostile power. All the documentation that they produce implies that there is nothing to be to be done by negotiating with the United States because the United States is determined uh, to cripple China. Now, once you get into that sort of confrontation, it's very difficult to see the path towards mutual tolerance, if you like, mutual understanding. And so the fact is, we actually don't know what Xi Jinping's risk appetite is. If you are afraid for the party's position and your own position, then things that could look like a gamble become possible options. And we've seen that with Putin. You know, there was, frankly, not a lot to be gained for Putin by invading Ukraine. He lost Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2. He lost his major customer in the European Union. But he did it anyway. So it's it's very difficult to say with certainty that there are no circumstances under which Xi Jinping would not contemplate a war. Is it tech that's 
the magnet for them? Is it what Taiwan have got advanced microchip manufacture and so on? Is that what they're after? Because there are some things which, while they're very good at mass manufacturing, the Chinese have not got. And this is things like microchip manufacture. It's like advanced metallurgy that we use to make jet engines and so on. And there's a reason why there are three big manufacturers of jet engine parts and none of them are in China and none of them want to open a factory in China. Well, of course, the, the big asset that Taiwan has is a company called TSMC, which manufactures about 60% of the world's most advanced microchips. Now, China can, can produce much lower level chips, but it's highly dependent both on, on American supplies and on Taiwan. I don't think that is the primary motive for seeking to recover Taiwan. Xi Jinping wants to be seen as a historic figure. There's only one big job left, and that is, as the party would put it, the recovery of Taiwan. Now, of course, the Taiwanese see this very differently. And because we've had perhaps now two um, efforts at uh, making work Deng Xiaoping's formula of one country, two systems, once in Tibet and once in Hong Kong, and they both ended with Chinese repression, the Taiwanese are extremely wary of, of Chinese promises. And they will seek to preserve the status quo as long as they can. And as time goes by, the pressure on Xi Jinping to change that status quo for political reasons will grow. TSMC could be a hostage in this. The, you know, the world's microchips uh, are, are very much you know, at risk here. Again, it's a reason that the entire world needs to be concerned about the fate of Taiwan. Thought-provoking stuff, isn't it? That was China expert Isabel Hilton. To human health now, and a midwifery lecturer at Anglia Ruskin University has developed a new app that aims to help healthcare practitioners, educators and student midwives screen for health conditions at birth. Lindsay Rose is the brain behind it. So what was the ambition here? I wanted to have a resource for my students originally to do this really complex examination for newborns that every baby has at 72 hours of birth and again at six weeks. I wanted a quick and easy resource that they could just flip up from their pocket and get everything they needed to know. These are the things that you're looking for because we always say prevention's better than cure. Pick stuff up early and you can intervene and, and solve problems before they yeah. become an issue. Yeah, so it's screening. It's not diagnostic, it's screening, and it's an educational tool to help them. We look mainly at hips, heart, eyes and testes in these babies, but um, the, the app actually covers much more than that because mm. it's a holistic examination. Was this a particular problem for midwives, remembering and, and feeling sufficiently resourced to do these checks thoroughly then in the past? I don't think so much that it's a particular problem. It's just really nice to have a handy resource that you can use in practice. So that, and also links to the online screening committee, national screening committee's um, guidelines, so that when things change, they can just make sure they get the appropriate information. So it's all about having that quick and easy resource. It's also very dynamic. It's uh, it's got heart sounds on there. It's got lots of pictures. All the all the pictures were drawn by students who were who did a competition to get those get the work. So yeah, I'm really proud of it. I've had a go. You sent yeah. me a login. It runs on a phone. You can yeah. also do it on a desktop. I was quite yes. pleased about that because yes. often you're forced onto one device with no, these no, sorts no. of things. And yes, I found the heart sounds and I was impressed because when I was a medical student, trying to find good quality heart sounds you could listen to to learn what you're listening for yeah. was almost impossible. So how did you do it? 
I had a wonderful colleague um, and uh, in uh, down in um, Dorset, and she very kindly collected some heart sounds for me. And um, yeah, just working, going into practice, and we bought a digital recorder. So yeah, yeah, just uh, it's about networking, I think, and, and that this app has really enabled that. Is this effectively the, the 21st century, what, what we in the medical trade used to call cheese and onion? We used to have mm-hmm. a book, the Oxford Handbook of Clinical Medicine, which every starting out doctor and medical student had in their pocket, which was basically the reference book. Yeah. You you go to that for all the clinical science and things. My copy looked very, very thumbed by the end of my training. Is is this the 21st century? This is the E yeah. equivalent, really, of, of that for yes, midwives. Yes, and that's what my research is all about, actually, for my PhD, is looking at um, using digital technology in, in healthcare and so that patients feel comfortable that you're actually on your phone while you're caring for them. Well, I was going to say that because the one thing that really upsets patients, mm-hmm. and it upset me, I, I went to see a GP to get a form signed recently, and I didn't look the person in the eye once because they were mm-hmm. looking at a computer yeah. screen. Yeah. And um, the thought that you've got someone with their new baby and the healthcare worker flips out a phone and just stares at a phone. Are patients comfortable with that sort of interaction? Well, I think they're going to be over time, maybe not straight away, but what's lovely about the app is the the midwife or or the SHO, whoever's doing the examination, can actually show them what they're looking at, show them some diagrams, show them, um, let them listen to the heart sound, say, this is what I'm listening for. And because it's, it's so interactive, they can actually involve the parents in it as well. Has it been received? really really well it's going it's um being taken up quite well across the country for the universities and um for individual midwives out there as well so i'm really looking for, looking to try and get the into gp practices because the examination the nipe examination is done again at six weeks and they check the same things again overseas Yes, and overseas. We're looking for working at the moment with um, Karolinska Institute in Sweden for their medical students there because their midwives don't do this examination, the doctors do it there. But also the third world countries, I'd really love for them to have it so that conditions, particularly congenital cataracts, are picked up early. People know what to look for and maybe can get treatment. And just very briefly, what's it called and how do people get it or find out more? It's called NIPE, which stands for Newborn Infant Physical Examination, um, textbook in a pocket, and it's on the Apple Store and the Google Play Store. Thanks very much. Lindsay Rose, the midwifery lecturer at Anglia Ruskin University. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. And still to come, we'll be hearing from the Welsh couple who've made one of the most significant fossil discoveries in the world. The man widely considered to be the godfather of artificial intelligence has decided to quit his job at Google after warning about the growing dangers of AI. Geoffrey Hinton said he was leaving the tech giant and has regretted the work he's done around artificial intelligence. I've been speaking with Josh Coles from the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford about what some of the dangers are, beginning with why they seem to be so poorly defined. Well, I think it's interesting to see a leading figure at Google resign that position so he can, in his words, speak out more about the potential dangers of AI to various things that we value in society, from our democracy um, to even potentially our, our health and our well-being. So I think the fact that one of the forefathers of AI has decided that now is the time to resign and speak his mind about AI says a lot about the development of the technology. But of course, a lot of the stuff has been spoken about and written about for a long time. In a lot of the coverage I've come across, 
it's been quite hand wavy when presenters say to their guests and authority figures who work in this space, well, what are the risks then? And we don't tend to hear some straightforward potential threats. Where do you see the risks? I think that's right. And I think a lot of the uh, problems with communicating the potential risks and harms of AI are the multiple different timescales that we can think of. So some people like to talk about the potential of AI to sort of take over humanity or or make us uh, work for it rather than vice versa, versus other scientists, and I would consider myself among this group, who think a bit more about the current and near-term potential risks of AI. Now, the reason that gets a bit complicated is because the scientific progress of AI is moving really rapidly. And people like Jeff Hinton talk about being a bit surprised about how quickly the technology has moved on. So for some people, that brings the longer term harms more into the focus. But I think for me, some of the more concrete potential harms of AI that are sort of staring us in plain sight are also important to take a look at as well. And what are they? So some of them are around bias. So AI is trained on a, an AI system is trained on typically very large uh, sets of text, often text corpuses from the internet. So that means that AI is basically in some ways being trained to reflect the society uh, in which it's participating. And of course, society isn't perfect. And the kind of biases which can come across through text might be relayed into AI. Another concern is around what we call disinformation, which is the risk that AI can uh, spread uh, falsehoods or, or things that seem true but aren't actually true. For example, the New York Times recently did a test of uh, the OpenAI chat GPT system to see what, how it responded to a prompt about a conference about the founding of AI in 1958. And it found that that re- response from OpenAI created numerous falsehoods, uh, which really didn't happen. They claimed that the New York Times had had a front page story about this AI conference. That wasn't true. And many other things that weren't true either. The trouble with AI systems is that we can't necessarily tell uh, the difference between what is true and what is false when it's coming out of the text boxes with which we interact with it. Yes, indeed. I I looked up what ChatGPT thought about the naked scientist, and it told me that Patrick Moore, (laughs) the famous astronomer, used to be in the naked scientist and, in fact, helped (laughs) to found it, which uh, I wish that were true, but it's not. Beyond that, though, how do you see this being placed in society? How do you see it being used? I think the really significant contribution uh, and advance of OpenAI's uh, and Google's systems are this co- the conversational style which they adopt. So I think one of the dangers uh, which they introduce is the fact that we might be lulled into thinking of these systems as in some ways uh, intelligent or even sentient beyond uh, their actual capacity. And so that might shape in turn how we make decisions because we've long had assisted decision-making in things like criminal justice. Also health, these systems are increasingly being used how to do that within a safe and ethical framework is is the really important thing. And I think the danger with um, these kind of off-the-shelf products uh, like ChatGPT is that we start to take their uh, what they say as true, as we've talked about, but also that we start to sort of incorporate those um, those statements and those responses into our day-to-day lives in ways that are quite hard to tr- trace back to the AI system, let alone how the AI system came to that decision. So I think what's really interesting about this most recent generation of AI chatbots uh, is their conversational ability, their ability to make us feel like they are uh, listening to us, responding to us and understanding what we mean, and that they kind of know what they're replying back to us, which, which isn't really the case. And so I think that that is the particular danger which the current generation AI uh, models contains. One of the issues, though, with all of this is that it's not explainable. If you ask people who Mm. work in AI how it works, even 
Google say that they don't understand how their system produces some of the outcomes and outputs that it does. It's not so-called explainable. It can't tell you how it reached the conclusion it did. And that makes people inherently uncomfortable because throughout societies and, and how we do things, we document things, we take minutes at meetings and then we explain why we've made the decision that we have. And if we have a black box where we put inputs in and outcomes come out and we don't know what connects the two in the middle, that seems to me to be extremely disconcerting. That's right. Explainability is another major challenge for AI, both technically with people working on the ground to try to make AI systems more explainable. And this is where I think you know regulation is really going to come into it. Uh, the European Union is coming out with its own Artificial Intelligence Act, uh, which creates new safeguards and standards for companies deploying uh, AI systems. And it may well be that those uh, standards are, are adopted elsewhere as well, which could push the onus back onto the companies developing and deploying these systems. The worry is that when these systems become so embedded in, in work and in, in, in life and everything else, it may be that the genie is too far out the bottle and that some of these outputs have already worked their way into the messiness of human life in a way that is tough to extricate. But I'm sure that governments uh, and others will be looking at ways to try to respond to that. Are we at risk if we start to import, use and deploy AI type platforms in a generalizable way? at risk of sort of surfing our way towards mediocrity. Because one of the things that's one of our weaknesses but turns out to be one of our strengths is the fact that humans are completely fallible and we do odd things for reasons we can't explain and sometimes we call that creative genius. And it, if we weren't to have made the mistake, we wouldn't have made the leap forward. And things that are trained using the extent of our endeavour hitherto ends up creating a fence saying this is this is what we know and we operate only within those parameters and so you could end up preventing the next great leaps or preventing people who would be those amazing orchestrators of the next development because the system says well they don't conform i think that's right to the extent that um industries could start to you know creative industries could start to use uh, AI technologies in a way that can drive, uh, yeah, drive, drive conformity, as you say, or drive mediocrity. But I suppose the sort of more optimistic side of it is that the best art and the, even the best science has often come from, come from challenging the status quo, uh, from, from resisting, uh, whether it's regimes or, or particular ways of doing things and trying to change things up. To the extent that AI um, systems uh, become more dominant in society, one would hope that the resistance to those systems also stays very strong, if not becomes even stronger as well, and that actually we might get a bit of a, um, a cultural space in which people can take uh, pride in opposing uh, these systems. Now, there's a phrase that I, that I uh, won't use, which was popular around the time of the uh, GCC results, which were marked during COVID, uh, where some students, I think, rightly had some issues with the algorithm that was used to uh, to assign their grades in the absence of, of uh, exams at that time. Uh, and that's the kind of protest and opposition which I think is, is potentially quite exciting because it forces us to think through as a society and as uh, communities, what do we value? You know, we, certainly we, we value truth, so we should be very careful that AI systems don't bend our notion of what, what is in fact true. But we also value um, sort of freedom and, and um, kind of creation and, and these other important things um, which uh, make society what it is. Because as you say, if society is overrun with just a series of self kind of, uh, if, if society is overrun with a series of AI bots which do a lot of this work for us, that forces us to think, well, what are we for, really? What, what do we do? What kind of world um, do we 
uh, want to create? And that, those are the kind of questions which, for me, only humans and communities can uh, understand and answer, not the AI systems that we've developed to do some of this other work. Josh Coles from the University of Oxford. One of the world's most important fossil deposits has recently been uncovered in Wales. A husband and wife team, Joseph Bossing and Lucy Muir, made the discovery during the pandemic lockdown. With me now from Clandrindod in Wales. So what exactly is it, Joe, that you've found? Almost all of the the fossil record misses the vast majority of animals because you only get the fossilised, the bits that are the hard, the, the mineral shells, the bones, the teeth, that sort of thing. But there are very, very few places around the world where you can get, by some sort of fluke of chemistry, the preservation of soft tissues, entire animals, um, extremely delicate structures. And we found stumbled across a site like this near our home. Lucy, how did the two of you find this? Was this just at one of those lockdown walks? Well, we actually found the site about 10 years ago and had done a bit of work there collecting fossil sponges, which is what Joe worked on. And then it came to the lockdown. Joe thought, oh, I'll go and get a few more specimens from that quarry. Then I can write up that fauna. So he went out, hammered some rocks and found a little uh, worm tube with tentacles coming out. And at that point, we knew there was a lot more there than just sponges. And Joe, the, the quality of what you've got, is it is it because the, the, the preservation is so good that you've got insights at, at very, very detailed levels? Or is it just that there's such a huge diversity there? Or is it both? It's both. Yeah, we have um, something like 170 species, we think, so far. But the point is, it's everything. So we don't seem to be missing any major parts of the ecosystem. We've got everything from tiny little worms to little crustaceans to strange tentacled monsters. Um, mostly they're just one or two millimetres long, but they're... Um, but the detail within them is absolutely stunning. And it goes down to micron scale, so a thousandth of a millimetre resolution in some of the features that we're seeing. We've got a little arthropod that's um, two millimetres long and preserves its brain and its optic nerve and the eye. And another one with a gut that's 20 microns wide, you know, 20 thousandths of a millimetre. It's just extraordinary. You mentioned, Lucy, and Joe, the fact these are very, very small. I was staggered when I read your paper to learn that because you're, although you're honorary academics at a nearby institution, you basically had to crowdfund to buy a microscope to do this work. You've done this as almost citizen scientists. Yes, that's right. We very soon realised that our small but adequate microscope just couldn't visualise the things that we were finding. So we actually tried crowdfunding to get a good microscope and a good camera. And people were incredibly generous and we raised £18,000 and got two microscopes and two good cameras. So we can actually photograph the fossils, we can publish papers about them so that everyone knows about them. That's that's a microscope each, isn't it? Fantastic. And Joe, um, this assemblage that you've got dates from about 462 million years ago what is the importance and relevance of that point in the timeline yeah this is an interval um, which is very important in the evolution of life it's before the origin of land plants before there was anything living on land but after a period called the cambrian when we have a lot of these faunas that tell us how the first animals got going but it's in a sort of gap in the record where we know life was diversifying spectacularly, that ecosystems were getting much more complex. But we only really know that from the Shelley fossils, the brachiopods and trilobites. 
So this falls into this gap and fills in a huge hole in our knowledge because it's telling us what all the soft-bodied animals were doing at the same time. And Lucy, do you know why what you've found is there, as in why it's been so well preserved and why you've, you've still got it for you to find today? The short answer is that's some of the work we're going to be doing over the, the next few years. We, we've got some ideas. We know that the fossils, uh, well, the animals that became the fossils were buried alive, probably by sediment slumps. Uh, and we think there might be something a bit odd about the seawater chemistry, because we don't normally see this type of soft tissue preservation at this age. So the area was a volcanic island complex. So we think maybe all the volcanic activity made the seawater chemistry a bit odd, and that somehow allowed things to become preserved that would normally just have rotted away. In your paper, Joe, you point out a lot of the animals are juveniles. So is it that this is this is just the right place for young animals to be reared? Is that why you think that that volcanic island complex has is, is got so many juveniles in there? Or is there some other reason why they're so heavily represented here? It's actually very difficult to interpret this. because There's only one species that we can be sure we're looking at juveniles, and that's a trilobite that normally gets up to about six centimetres long, and here it gets up to five millimetres. Everything else, including a lot of these strange soft body things, are actually the same sort of size, a millimetre or two, as they are in the modern, and much smaller than they were in the, the Cambrian before it. So we think that possibly it was an ecosystem maybe attached to undersea boulders and so on, where you have a small sort of forest, if you like, of uh, little encrusting creatures, and only small animals could really fight, fit into the ecological niches there. So the adult trilobites were off living somewhere else, but they, they left their, uh, their juveniles to grow up there. But we don't know at this stage whether a lot of the other small crustaceans and so on were juveniles or whether they're actually adults of the same sort of size as they are today. It's going to be quite hard to work that one out. We're just going to need a lot more fossils in today. Thanks very much to Joe Botting and Lucy Muir. And their paper describing what they found is just out in Nature, Ecology and Evolution. And let's wrap up this part of the show with a look at our question of the week, sent in this time by Alan. How long does evolution take? How many generations does it take for an adaptation to become the norm in a species? And other than rate of procreation, what are the factors that affect this? Thanks. Love the show. Good question, Alan. How quickly does evolution happen? The short answer is, it depends on what you are and where you are. Evolution is the process in which living organisms' heritable traits change as successive generations replace one another. And so if the physical changes of evolution are mostly instigated by molecular changes, therefore evolution only happens when it needs to. Animals like sharks and crocodiles have remained relatively unchanged for hundreds of millions of years because, well, they just work. But they're outliers in evolutionary terms. Nearly everything else has undergone change in that same time period. So how does the genetic mutation responsible for evolution happen? Here to explain is the University of Plymouth's Andy Foggo. The process starts with the occurrence of usually small but heritable changes in the genetic code of organisms. These occur as a result of things like hybridization, mistakes in copying of the code when cells divide, and as a result of environmental triggers such as background radiation natural sources like sunlight. These genetic changes, which are the actual stuff of evolution, can happen on a timescale of seconds. So in that sense, evolution can be thought of as being very fast. Getting those molecular changes to spread in a population to the point where the physical, chemical and behavioural differences between individuals result in new species, well, that takes much longer. 
This can range from a few weeks in the laboratory to millions of years in nature. There really are no rules here. Evolution is therefore both very, very fast and unbelievably slow. And since evolution can only happen when traits are passed down through generations, the speed at which an adaptation becomes the norm is specific to how large that organism is, how complex its genetic code is, and how quickly that organism can reproduce. The things that affect the rate of evolution more than anything else are the size of the organisms and the environmental conditions in which they occur. Generally, the smaller the organism, the faster the generational turnover. The faster that turnover, the greater the chances of a change occurring, the greater the opportunities for natural selection to act, and the faster the accumulation of difference. But aside from that, there are other environmental factors as well. Environments with higher background levels of ionising radiation, like sunlight, and higher temperatures, usually have higher rates of cellular metabolism, cellular division, mutation, and hence opportunities for both forms of evolution too. So unfortunately, because of all of this, we can't say what the speed of evolution is, but we can say that places like the tropical rainforest are where it happens the fastest. So thanks very much to Alan for that question. Hopefully you've inherited some knowledge that you can pass down through future generations. And if you have a question that you'd like us to try and answer, do send it in to chris at nakedscientist.com. Thanks to Will Tingle for that amazing answer to question of the week. And if you'd like to participate, as Will says, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. We'd welcome your thoughts. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.